0: Welcome to the Online Broadcast. I'm Curry Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud.
1: And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud online, ended up on the United States' most wanted list, spent time in prison, and since that point, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against
0: people like I used to be. And today we're going to spend some time talking about a topic that we hear a lot from our merchant listeners, as as well as other listeners, too. And that's drop addresses. There's just a lot going on with shipping. And I mean, drop addresses are something that you created way back in the day. But now there's just so many different types and what are they doing? And people really want to understand, you know, how are they being set up? And if I'm sending this to a residential address, is it really that cardholder or is it to somewhere else and all the different ways it can be. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you and learning from you as well as providing some of the things that I know have been working for merchants having these issues. But first, I know that you kind of got in a Twitter war over this past week, and it's relevant to cybercrime. We both wanted you to talk about somebody who just recently, you know, we talked about Julian Assange last week, and then now this week, someone else has now he's pled guilty. So it's Marcus Hutchins. And he's kind of known as the WannaCry hero. Admittedly, I don't know half as much about this as you do, so I'm just going to let you kind of take it away.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. So, So Marcus Hutchins... Goes by, on Twitter, he goes by MalwareTechBlog. Uh, his, his screen name, he's mostly known by MalwareTech. He is the gentleman who stopped the WannaCry ransomware attack. He, outstanding work. I, I will not take that away from the guy at all. He saved many businesses tons of money, tons of heartache and trouble. So that's, that's certainly a great thing. The problem is, is that Marcus, he decided to fly over to Las Vegas Right after the WannaCry attack, he was going to DEFCON. He was going to—I don't know if he was speaking over there or what—but he was over there. Well, guess what? He gets arrested. Oh yeah, yeah, he gets arrested by federal authorities. Why? Well, it turns out that it's—that I'm not sure if he stopped or when he stopped or what have you—but he was a member of Alpha Bay. So. For our listeners out there who may not remember, Alphabay was the largest criminal network on the planet up until July 5th of last year. When the feds came in, shut it down, the owner, a guy named Alexander Kazaz, he hanged himself in the jail in Thailand. Marcus Hutchins was a member of Alphabay. Not only a member, but a criminal member of Alphabay. Yes, yes, he was committing crime. What type of crime? Well, he was putting out malware, particularly malware that would capture bank logins. Yes, that was Mr. Hutchins. So he was arrested for that. And of course, when he was arrested, all these people came out, all these cybersecurity people came out, and they were like, oh, he's really a good guy. Oh, he's great. Oh, he wouldn't have never done anything like that at all. Well, guess what? He was actually, he actually pled guilty. He pled guilty like three, four days ago to two counts of what? Yes, creating this malware that captured bank logins. They even had text messages about it, about him complaining that he wasn't making enough money on this illegal criminal software that he had developed. So he pled guilty. Of course, I'm sitting there going, yeah, I figured he
0: was. Got in an <laughs> argument with him on
1: Twitter. That's
0: why did I you did. think, why did you figure he was? I mean, he really has been seen as a a hero for, you know, creating really a not just a patch, but like a solution for the WannaCry ransomware, which really was wreaked havoc on businesses oh. in 2017. And he did it pretty quickly. Now this, what he pled guilty to is very separate from WannaCry, correct?
1: It, it is completely separate than that.
0: And, and did it did happen it? before or after he created it, happens, the it happened before before okay. he cre-
1: before he stopped the wanna cry attack so this this dates back to 2013 2014 maybe sometime after that as well we do not know if he continued to break the law up and t- up through the wanna cry uh ransomware that was launched and the way he stopped WannaCry, cry for those who don't know in the code of the ransomware there was a domain listed there that was a trigger he found the domain that was listed no one had registered it so he registered it and when it registered it stopped the ransomware attack from going any further at that point mm. okay so that's okay. that's how the attack was stopped the, the interesting thing and this is why i got an argument with him I was fortunate enough, I, I did some shows over in uh, some presentations in the UK. One of the presentations that I gave the organizers there, they were going to have Marcus in the week that he was actually arrested in Las Vegas. Of course, he couldn't make it over back to the UK because they had arrested him in the United States. And, and they had told me that when he was arrested, it turns out that he was living in these expensive digs in Las Vegas and he was driving these really expensive cars and everything else. And of course, their question was, Wonder how he afforded that. And, of course, my answer was, well, I think we already know how he afforded that. Now, mm. now is, that, is that me being an asshole? Yeah, that's me being an asshole. Certainly, you've got Airbnb, you've got rental cars, you've got all this other thing. But the thing is, here is the truth of the matter for all cybercriminals, self-included a criminal will not change his ways unless something happens to make him change his ways so please someone tell me exactly what Mar- what happened to marcus before the arrest that would have made him stop breaking the law
2: hmm
0: i guess my thought would be possibly the the fame and the praise that came from stopping wanna cry but to your point that's not the same as being caught and prosecuted and put in prison right
1: well that's true but even if you even if that were the impetus that happened just what 2 to 3 weeks before he was arrested mm. so did he did he stop at that point because I can't see anything that happened before that that would have given him the motivation or the incentive to step back and stop breaking the law because again his motivation was 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 apparent from his text that the feds had from Alphabet he was complaining about not making enough money selling this malware to people. So mm. he was all in it for the money. So if he's in it for the money, what exactly would have made him stop before the fame that came with WannaCry and then the subsequent arrest after that?
0: Well and it seems like there's a lot I mean this reminds me of the there was another one that oh gosh, it was come it had a really funny name. I could look it up, but there was another person in Cybercrime recently who was trying to be the good guy, and it turned out he was actually a bad guy as well. So I think there's like a lot of fence straddling in cybercrime, you know, where you're a good guy or a bad guy depending on the opportunity and the moment. What's interesting to me is I looked up his Twitter account, and he posted something two days ago on Saturday I don't know which one you you know replied to. He said, "There's a misconception that to be a security expert, you must dabble in the dark side. It's not. (laughs) It's not true. You can learn everything you need to know legally. Legally, stick to the good side." So, does that mean that he's trying to say he was on the good side and that he's being framed? Because why would he you know admit guilt? Or is he trying to like heed the you know basically try to say like heed my own warning? You know, learn from my mistakes. You know, hackers and stuff below me, you can be a security expert without dabbling in the dark side. I'm not but, quite sure how to take that.
1: Well, I, I take it as the guy is, is now trying to say, Oh, I was never a bad guy. Right. You see, he, he's getting ready to go up for sentencing. He faces a maximum of 10 years in prison. Now, is he going to do 10 years? No, he might get 24 months. All right, might, might but the Mm -hmm. thing is is that on his twitter account on all of his social media feeds and everything else what he's doing is is he's making sure that if anyone says anything negative about him he tries to ban them as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible why in case the judge and the prosecution reads these social media things. So they all see just positive things about Marcus.
0: Ah, that explains why he also posted the day before that he has nothing but infinite gratitude for those who have shared kind messages today. <laughs> I feel undeserving of them, but you really helped me get through today. Thank you. Heart emoji. Yeah. That's, that, that's this guy. That is this guy. So well, he's, he's young too, he's right? Young. He's yeah. Young. And, and you know, my thing is,
1: is that, okay. I, I really do respect that he stopped the wanna cry attack. I really do respect that. But please don't yank my chain trying to pretend that you were a good guy for several years prior to that it came out. Right. I can't believe that for a second. Not for a second. And the thing is, we you know, we discussed this before before we started recording today. This type of crime, cybercrime as a whole, affects everyone everyone, every aspect of cybercrime affects everyone. WannaCry cry was a ransomware attack okay so you, all vendors merchants, consumers everyone needs to know about ransomware but the stuff that that Marcus was developing this program that captures bank logins, how important is that to everyone everyone
0: hmm. right well, and the reason we we're talking about it is because I admitted that I don't really pay attention to this stuff. I don't pay attention that much. I haven't paid that much attention to Julian Assange or, you know, hackers that are creating malware viruses or anything. And I, I think that I probably am very similar to a lot of other people in fraud. There's so much to focus on within just the area of fraud that it can be really overwhelming to try to also understand all of the security stuff that's happening from your point really, especially these days, like they know no boundaries, you know, it used to be kind of this insulated bubble of payment fraud, but now payment fraud is now, you know, ballooned out into account compromises and ATOs for, you know, purposes other than payments and, you know, all these other things that now also on a spectrum, like if you were to look at a timeline, the malware and the cybercrime that happened for hacking and data breaches Directly feed into how much volume we're going to see on the payment fraud side. So, I think that like through doing this podcast with you and through you know really giving you an opportunity to share what you think is important and what our listeners need to hear, I've kind of learned my own blind spots in a way. I just have kind of tuned those out. <laughs> like, oh, that I mean, doesn't right. matter you're to right. me. I'll just go on.
1: <laughs> I mean, if if you think about it, okay. So so a lot of a lot of whatever business you're in. All right, if you're if you're running a shop, if you've got a non-profit, uh, I don't care what the business is, you are a target of cybercrime. The thing is is that people say merchants that we talk to merchants or for merchants a lot. So, we're, ta- we're we're speaking to merchants. Now, a lot of merchants tend to just focus on their their tunnel vision of what cybercrime is just for the business that they're involved in. But the problem is is that cybercrime Every aspect of, of financial cybercrime affects every single person. For example, look at the NotPetya attack that happened after WannaCry. Right now, NotPetya was a third-party breach of an accounting firm in the Ukraine. It was launched by the Russian government. I forgot the actual group that that launched that over in the over in the over in Russia but they launched it against the Ukraine because the Ukraine is kind of a test bed for all of Russia's hacking attacks. Now, how does that relate to a merchant? Here's how it relates to a merchant. 90%, over 90% of every single attack happens with known exploits. Over 90%. Okay. Now, if you, if you, if you really get that, look at this, this Russia attack, how they attacked the Ukraine. These, these were upper tier hackers. These were the best of the best. These people that are less than 1% of all the cybercrime population, they launched this attack. But to launch the attack, they used known exploits. Sure, the, the ransomware itself was a new type of ransomware, but the way it was was propagated, the way it was, was deployed, used non, used already known exploits that Everyone uses that every single cybercrime, even the low level carters use today to gain access. It's that type of importance. We need to understand and get this whole picture of what cybercrime is. It's only by understanding the entire picture that you can better defend yourself and understand the avenues by which you can be attacked.
0: Hmm. No, that's really fascinating. And I think eye opening for me and I hope other people as well that are listening, I think. You know, it also kind of reminds me of what Kevin Lee said a couple of weeks ago when we talked to him about the playground analogy that Sheryl Sandberg shared with them about, you know, careers. I was thinking of it from a fraud perspective of like, OK, the slide, the swings that, you know, doing different things within fraud will really help you grow as a person and as a leader, additionally, in cybercrime. And I think that especially for smaller merchants that don't have a huge InfoSec team you can really be helpful in researching this stuff and knowing about it. I mean, I was talking to a merchant last week who said that they really got hit hard with the malware that was, well, it wasn't a malware. It was like a, I can't remember. I remember it, but I don't remember it well. You probably do better than I do, but the Microsoft event where. Oh yeah. I forgot the name of that. But yeah. yeah. But the virus that would then pop up on a screen, you'd call a number. It wasn't really ransomware, but it was a type of fishing fraud. Sure. And the fraudsters were having these consumers that had this pop-up on here buy gift cards at various prominent retailers to get access back. And it wasn't fully m- ransomware. It was about for a week, but it just happened. It really hit merchants hard, and I didn't even really realize it. That's what was happening because it wasn't really anything that was on my radar. These fraudsters were having the consumers place orders, but... It would look like fraud, but then when you'd call the person, they'd be like, no, no, I wanted to do it. And it'd be like $300 in in gift cards directly from this company. And the merchant would see all kinds of weird stuff, but it would also look very legitimate. That was all through that virus that, you know, that hit and Microsoft was very quick to patch it. You know, that also depends on people updating their computer, which I'm... At fault for two, I open up my computer in the morning and it says there's new updates on my antivirus. And I'm like, oh, but I have so many emails. I try really hard to do it often. I can understand that. Like, I don't want to restart. I have all my tabs open that I need, which is just so (laughs) silly. I know. And people that do malware love people like me. But I mean, I'm just being super honest. Like, it doesn't mean I don't update. It just means
2: it's
0: kind of a pain. I think most people are like that. But yeah, so there are definitely, like, there there are starting to be less and less boundaries. And just like you had mentioned, like, with Julian Assange last week about how his talk at your event was, or at the event that you also spoke at, was around, you know, boundaries from a country to then online. I think it's very similar. And I (laughs) thought of this weird analogy today. Because it's spring, we're starting to have a lot of dandelions pop up. And
2: we <laughs> got
0: rid of ours last year, like pretty well. But then, you know, the neighbors didn't, right? And those right. seeds don't just stay in their yard. The That's wind true. blows, and it goes into my yard. And now we have all these dandelions <laughs> that are popping up over and. Over again. I'm about to pay my teenager ten cents a root so that we can get <laughs> rid of them. That that analogy can really be made in so many ways. When we're talking about cybercrime and fraud, they know no boundaries. Those. Dandelion seeds are going to cross over back and forth. They inform each other. I, I think up until the last year or so, it they've been pretty strict boundaries where cybercrime is really only focused on or you know, info information security is really focused on protecting the data so that people don't get access to it. and fraud is focused on, monetization of the data, whether it came from you or anyone else. Most of the time it's coming from other places, from other merchants and things like that. Sure. Whereas now those boundaries are starting to get crossed. Just the same can be said in the first analogy I thought of with the dandelions in my yard was how much you and I talk about collaboration and how that fraud trend might be hitting, you know, in this case your neighbor's yard, but then pretty quickly those seeds are gonna blow over into your yard. Right. And that's why it's so important to, you know, collaborate with each other because you're it's not these huge borders with, you know, giant 20 foot walls like between merchants or even between cyber crime, you know, cybersecurity and fraud anymore. Like I, all of the boundaries are being kind of squished together and, and molded as um, cyber criminals get more brave and emboldened um, and educated. So You're absolutely right. Yeah, you, I think that that's important.
1: And, you know, the thing is, is that, so, I, you know, again, I wish Marcus Hutchins the best in the world. I really do. And I hope that at some point he's really able to accept responsibility for his actions of breaking the law. All right. And, and I think that he needs to, whatever the consequences is, that's what he needs to do is, is face up to those consequences. Now, now that said, just just one other tag on here. Again, just to illustrate how important cybercrime as a whole is to every single person, merchants, individuals, consumers, whatever that is, cybercrime as a whole is important to everyone. Third party breaches. 56% of companies have experienced a breach caused by third parties.
2: 56%.
1: So that, that's one of the, the main avenues that companies get in. So if you're if you're a merchant, how many vendors or security monitors or, or whatever third parties are accessing your system every single day? That's the question. And see that becomes hugely important because on average, on average, 89 vendors access a network weekly, 89. Do you know how many of those vendors are usually checked out before they're allowed access to the network? Oh boy, none. So that's the entire problem is, is that cybercrime as a whole needs to be understood so that companies, individuals, everyone can come up with better security.
0: No, I think that those are very, very relevant points. And I think just to kind of wrap up on on Marcus Hutchins, I mean, I, I think that part of it comes down to what we talk about fairly often where, you know, using the alcoholic analogy where you're now reformed and you're yeah. a little harder <laughs> on the people that are, are like you were maybe 10 years ago because you recognize it. You recognize the fact that, you know, he's very instantly, you know, trying to teeter between the victim and the hero. The hero of Wanna Cry, but the victim of this arrest, and that he, you know, is really a good guy. And I hope that he does figure out which side he's on. I feel like you know my grandfather used to say, "You can't ride two horses with one ass."
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's better than riding two asses with one horse.
0: Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I literally just face palmed myself. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, you know, you can't be both bad and good, right? You can't use something good that you did to overshadow the bad things you did no, that and
1: that does not make up for it.
0: It's not 100% right. And I think that's what you're saying and I think it's really good that you're doing that. Like I think from nobody sees through somebody's tricks and everything than someone who's been through it before. Right. And that's why, you know, my daughter's so unfortunate to have me as a mom. Cause I know all the teenage <laughs> tricks. I did them. <laughs> been there, done that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm all, you know, just like with you, you know, all the tricks of somebody who's trying to be good. And I mean, you don't just get to post a couple posts on Twitter and have people assume that you have reformed. I mean, gosh, I, I have vetted you for over three months before I gave you a chance.
1: Right. right. And and again, you know, the I changed simply because there were circumstances which forced the change. It was my sister, it was my wife, it was the FBI, it was prison. It, were all the, it was all these factors together which forced the change. And I was fortunate enough that, that people like you, the FBI, Neil O'Farrell over at Identity Theft Council, all these other people, Microsoft, gave me the opportunity, the opportunity to use the knowledge I have for good instead of evil. that's what really precipitated and caused the change. Now, of course, I was willing to have the change as well. I mean, I had an active part in that too. I just don't see with Marcus where, certainly I see where it happened with the arrest and possibly with the WannaCry saving as well because at that point, things changed completely for
0: the guy. Right. He was like, oh, wow, I can get all this fame and notoriety by being a good guy, not just by being a bad guy. But up until that point, I would like
1: to know what precipitated the change from him stopping breaking the law Mm -hmm. to going straight
0: to the good side because I simply do not see that. Right. And as you know, too, that there's like this misconception that bad guys, I mean, just for lack of a better term, right, or fraudsters or cyber criminals, whatever you want to say, are very wanted in the good side for cybersecurity. And to a certain extent, that's true. But, I mean, you also know how challenging it is to be on the good side. You didn't have a job for a few years. Like you know, I mean, you really were were struggling and and I'm grateful that I was able to help you guys. I mean, gosh, your wife, you know, <laughs> ch- choking up in tears to me last year when we met in person the first time and thanking me for, you know, the opportunity that I provided. You definitely yeah. got me in the, you know, in the tear ducks as well. It got a little dusty, as my <laughs> husband says. <laughs> he gets a little emotional. Because <laughs> heaven forbid he admit that, you know, he was emotional or he's sensitive. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is a brand new movie theater. There, I don't think there's any dust. But <laughs> I know that you had to kind of pay your dues and not, you know, you went from being really wealthy from, you know, cybercrime to having literally nothing. And, like, you know, stealing toilet paper from public bathrooms. Like, I mean right. – You know, and then you built yourself back up. It doesn't just happen overnight because companies especially are very leery of giving, you know, people a chance that have, you know, it's a lot more profitable to be on the bad side.
2: I mean, absolutely. Uh,
1: And they should be leery. They should be leery. That should be the first question. And Lord knows, Lord knows that a criminal, whether the criminal is still breaking the law or not, the criminal has a lot of knowledge and an insight that a lot of companies don't have. But the question that you've
0: demonstrated that,
1: (laughs) right, right. But what, what a company needs to ask before they hire someone is what exactly precipitated the change? Is Mm -hmm. it prison? Did prison reform the guy? Because sometimes that happens. Was it family? Was it, what was it that precipitated the change? Because if there's not a clear answer to that, and especially if the criminal can't answer it, Mm -hmm. if the criminal can't tell you what, what made me change, then the chances, as far as I'm concerned, I don't see a change.
0: Mm. That's really sage advice. Um, I know you and I both get contacted every once in a while here and there by people who, you know, are either friends of people that have uh, committed crime and, you know, say they want to go on the good side or... You know, people have done that. And I think it's been with mixed outcome, (laughs) Um, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) But you are like the human lie detector in my book because you know all the games. You know, just like I said, how I, you know, I know teenage games. Like I, you know, you know, the things that are said and, you know, when it's genuine and when it's not. And that's something that really, you know, hit home for me with you when I was, you know, vetting you and all that during that time was just how genuine you were and just how like you were the first one to admit that you were responsible for your actions and it wasn't just lip service. I could tell it was genuine and that was when I went with my gut. I mean, anyone that's worked in fraud prevention has honed their gut and I'm grateful that I did. It's really hard. It's hard to believe it's (laughs) only been two years since we met in person. I know, right? I mean, it's crazy (laughs) how much has happened in two years as well as just how good of friends we are. Like, It's nuts, but I was thinking about that because CMP is literally in a month from today that we're recording. I know this week, but yeah, you're about to go on a speaking tour. So we're doing this early a little bit. It's just crazy to see how far you've come in two years. I'm so proud of you, but it's because of hard work and it's because you've been vulnerable and you've admitted your mistakes. I mean, sometimes even in more detail than most people want to know, (laughs) I mean, really, you've, you've come so far and. I think you're a shining example of that, but you're also probably the the biggest critic of people who just claim that they woke up one day and now they're changed. Yeah, and that makes happen. sense. Right. Right. Because you know it because you've walked that hard right. path. I It's kind of like how I have less sympathy for some people in some situations than other people do because I've been in that situation before and I was able to get out. So there
2: you go.
0: I sometimes have less sympathy for people or like, you know, people that claim they have chronic pain. I'm like – Look, I'm dealing with a lot of chronic pain. And I'm still able to, you know, be a consultant for several large companies and, you know, be as busy as I am. Um, it's not without its challenges, but it can be done. And so I think that like, just thinking about my own circumstances, while that has nothing to do with the topic of fraud, it's just still, relating to
1: it. I right. Mean, you're
0: right. You're right.
1: I mean, I me, when I when I, when someone emails me and says, you know, I, like, I used to be this guy, I'm, I'm, I'm out of jail now. I want to, what can I do? My initial thought, actually, and I sometimes say it out loud to my wife. I'm I'll be on the email down in the down watching TV or whatever, and I'll get this email on the phone and I'll look at it and you, my wife will hear me say two words. Bullshit. <laughs> like that. <laughs> bullshit. And she'll say, What now? <laughs>
0: I can picture this entire conversation yeah. so well. <laughs> and
1: then I'll say, Well, I got some dude on here saying he's reformed. <laughs> Wonder who he is, and and you know we'll talk from there. I, I, I don't say that to the to whoever's emailing me in or whoever whatever, but right. I'll talk to him and email him and get a feel for them, and more times than not, uh, that initial thought of bullshit is correct. You know they're okay. They're just playing it. They're wanting to. They would like to be legal if they don't have to miss out on any money that they're
0: making. Right. right they're going to dip their toe in and see right. if it's going to be profitable to be legal, but it's not an actual change. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Right.
1: And that's, that's the entire, that's the entire issue that I have with it. And,
0: and yes, I, 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 am I a
1: hypocrite? I mean, I went through it. I did. And, and I changed my ways. Like with Marcus, I really do hope he's he him, him the best. I really think that from this point on, I think that he's going to be all right. I don't think that, I think he would be an idiot to go back on some of these criminal marketplaces because it was obvious he did not hide his identity well to begin with. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I think that now he's all right. But again, before want to crime before the arrest, I'm not sure what precipitated a change with him. I don't see anything that was there. But Mm. I'm through bitching
0: about it. (laughs) (laughs) You got it all out of your system. Well, I guess I would say, you know, because you went through it the hard way, that's why you're skeptical. Right. Um, And also, you are literally the only like cyber criminal, like from a fraud perspective, from a payment fraud perspective. It's not a, you know, actual hacker in quotation marks that I know of that has reformed. That says something because we all know how many people there really are. And, you know, it does come with some skepticism. Jeez, that Slate podcast was full of skepticism. Sure. But you own up to it and, you know, you're the first one to admit I did bad things, but I'm trying to be better. And I think that there is a difference between the two. And that's, you know, that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk okay. about drama. Right? I know. We're going to run out <laughs> of time before we even get started on this. And this is something that I know so many people want to hear about and Really what it comes down to is there's always been drop addresses, right? There's And you know I'll let you explain like what a drop address is and how it works and all that in a second. But I think that they are becoming a lot more complex and harder for merchants to identify. And I think it would be super helpful to understand how are they created? What's the logic that goes into it? What are the different ways they're created? And then we'll just kind of go from there.
1: I'm not sure they're more complex. What I am aware of is that they're being used in much higher numbers than, than were used when I was breaking the law. Mm. All right, that's that's what I would say. So let's let's walk through, first, how a criminal sets up a drop address that he himself controls, like a credit card thief. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll mention that in a minute. I was, I was at this Denver Sheriff's Conference last week, and I learned something new about drop addresses. So I'll mention what that Which is. It surprised
0: me when you told me that. I was like, how can you too? know learn anything new? But that's the cool thing about fraud is that there's always something new for any of us to learn.
1: So how does a criminal start up with getting a drop address? So first of all, he buys a credit card or bank login. He's needing a physical address to have some piece of mail or a package sent in, whether it be replacement cards, new account cards, packages, whatever that will be. So to get that drop address, what we used to do is we would comb through real estate ads. Like we had, we had access to real estate databases. We'd comb through uh, advertisements for houses, try to get pictures of inside the house, or we'd go down and pick up one of these apartment guide books. You know, like they used to, they used to have these things for free at grocery stores and everything. You'd grab it and it'd have a listing of all the apartment complexes in the city that you were in. Nowadays that doesn't really work. So a lot of people just go through Zillow. So Zillow is this. Real online real estate site that has these houses for sale. It's kind of this aggregate type information site. So, what a criminal does is he typically goes to Zillow, he will start looking for a house in a specific zip code. So, he finds a house there. He's going to look inside of the house, get the pictures inside of the house. He's looking for a house that's that's staged. He wants furniture in the house because you don't want the house to look like it's abandoned so once he finds a house that looks like it's okay what does he do then he gets in the car he drives down to the neighborhood why does he do that the first question is 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 the house occupied if it's occupied that doesn't mean that you still can't use that for a drop address you still can you just need to make sure that people are gone when the mail is delivered so you look at the house does it is it occupied is it not make your decision from there if it's not occupied does it look abandoned does it have those sheets of paper in the house that's saying you know it's been abandoned for this long no one's living here blah 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 that is a house that you cannot use so you want a house that looks like it's upkept. everything looks good if there's a four cell site in the yard that's fine believe you me that's fine you can still use that so that gives the house now when you're when you're getting the house or the drop address what type of neighborhood are you looking for you looking for an upper class neighborhood a middle-class neighborhood, or a poor neighborhood? Any ideas?
0: I think, you know, gut would say upper-class, right? But I would I would just split the difference and say middle-class? Now, I didn't now, know there was going to be a pop quiz today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And here's the answer. The answer is middle-class neighborhood. Now, why are you looking for a drop address in a middle-class neighborhood? If it's a poor area, the chances of a, of a FedEx or UPS or USPS dropping off a package that may be a high-dollar package is pretty low. It's much lower than if it were a middle-class or an upper-class neighborhood. If it's upper-class, the chances of one of the spouses being at home during the day... Mm is pretty good. And believe you me, there is nothing worse than going up to steal mail off a porch, whether it be a package or an envelope or out of a mailbox and having that front door open and a spouse walk out. I have had that shit happen. It is not fun. <laughs>
0: so, you got to make something up real fast.
1: <laughs> right. And, and what I used to do at one point, I had flyers printed up that that were made up lawn care company. So as I was picking up the package off the porch, if the front door opened, Oh, Hey, I'm just getting this package off. you know, all these porch pirates out here and everything. I'm just getting it out of the way. So nobody can see it from the road. By the way, oh I'm doing gosh. lawn care
0: service. Oh, you you, of course you thought of that, <laughs> <laughs> but that's really interesting.
1: Right. So you do that now. The other reason for middle class neighborhood is not just if if the house is occupied, it's that everyone in the neighborhood, in a middle class neighborhood, tends to work through the day. So you tend to go through middle class neighborhood. So you're looking for that type of neighborhood. I like a neighborhood that the houses are close together. Now why is that? So if they're close together, the chances of the neighbors having the blinds drawn on the front is pretty high at that point. That way no one can see in. Well, the good thing is, is no one can see out either. You want a neighborhood where the mailboxes are close to the street. So you can literally pull up, not get out of your car, pop the mailbox open, get whatever mail is out of there. You want a a drop address where the doorway itself is visible from the street, so that way you don't have to pull up in the drive three or four times to see if a package or an envelope is sitting on the doorway waiting for you. So these are the type of things that you look at when you're getting a drop address.
0: It seems like a lot of work, but but I think you've said before that most criminals don't go through the effort of finding a drop address, which is a, a legitimate address for them to have their... Item shipped to, I guess we didn't really define it, but I think most people (laughs) listening probably know what that is. But what you're saying is like, because it does take a little bit of effort and thought and probably driving around, right? So you're saying that in these cases with these drop addresses, they would be near the near the criminal right within driving distance right. they so wouldn't it, be like far away these right. aren't like international
1: so the type of drop that you're going to have depends on the type of crime that you're committing okay so this drop address, address that i'm talking about once you do all that you, ha- you have to camp your butt out in the neighborhood to find out what time the mail runs. You want to know what time UPS, FedEx, and USPS runs because if they run at 7 p.m. at night, that's useless. People are home from work at that point. Someone might notice you getting a package off the porch or an envelope out or anything else like
0: that. Oh, well, good. So, that means that we won't ever have our, <laughs> our address used as a drop address because our mailman comes at like 7 o'clock at night. we got to love so that, is the UPS but, guy. Uh, no, yeah, that's,
1: that's a more experienced <laughs> criminal. That doesn't mean that one of these nimrods that's just right. starting out won't do that. But again, this depends on the type of crime. Is, is it a Carter, is a credit card thief that's doing high dollar items that's local to the area? The chances of him using a drop like this is pretty high at that point. Okay. If it's synthetic fraud, the chances of using a drop like this is pretty high at that point. New account fraud, you're going to have to have a drop address to get those cards in uh, replacement cards, the exact same thing. So it depends on the type of crime that's being committed as, to, and who's committing it as to what type of drop address is used.
0: I'm trying to think of like, how do you how do you identify this? So I mean, because there are other there are other ways of drop addresses as well. So just to mention a couple more before we go into prevention, I know that especially if well, I know there are different types of drop addresses as well or different uh, ways of looking at drop address like, these apps that have, you know, temporary rentals, whether it's VRBO or Airbnb or whatever. I know that those are being used. Obviously, you know, vacant houses, obviously. um, I mean, there was an article that I sent you over the weekend about a mailman in Texas that was paid off by a cyber criminal who was opening new accounts with Chase Bank. And he ended up spending over 300 or charging over $374,000 right. on these fraudulent credit cards and he was having all of them shipped to the same zip code and then he paid off the mailman to intercept those before they being delivered to those addresses on file so that then he could get them there's so many different ways of doing it um and i'm not even we're gonna wait to talk about reshipping schemes in a minute (laughs) but how can a merchant identify if something is a drop address i mean without like manual reviewing i mean i know we definitely identified when I was at Back Bar Steel just for the easiest example, because that was really the only sure. physical goods company that I worked for officially, like not as a consultant. Well, just, just talk about uh, that. you know, like we would notice like a $40,000 right. Hermes being shipped to the projects in New York and we would be like, oh, that's probably risky. But you've got to like do all that research. And right. I know a lot of our listeners do that, but they don't, they can't do it on everything.
1: Right. And just, just to feed into what you're saying, I used to, so when I was arrested, I was in Charleston, South Carolina. One of the big things, one of the good things about living in a coastal area are the, the, the availability of drop addresses. You mentioned, I don't care if it's Airbnb or what, these, these vacation rentals, whatever it may be. So you've got a lot of beach homes there. And in Charleston mm-hmm. specifically, you've got a lot of addresses that are simply empty that their vacation homes their rentals anything else like that so that's primary territory for someone to use those things as a drop address Uh, it it still fits in the exact same type of format that i discussed in even when you're 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 looking at those types of addresses you're wanting to make sure that the property looks upkept, that it's in a neighborhood where the neighbors aren't at home or the neighbors aren't nosy things like that Uh, that's that you still have to fit that same thing in and it still fits in with that who is running those types of drops and you're looking at people who are carting items that are that are more expensive that the turnaround is higher at that point so profit potential is higher you're looking at synthetic fraud you're looking at new account replacement cards those types of things there how do you find those things well i mean you can do a back a background check on the property property search to find out you can google the pro- the address itself see if it's for sale a lot of the times it will show that it's for sale um, any any address that's for sale and that's I've talked to a lot of companies about that but if you if you're googling an address and it comes up that it's for sale that should be to me that should be a huge flag popping up there
0: hmm i mean because i, I would say And we moved about a year ago, and I ordered a lot of things before I moved. (laughs) I do think that, you know, for the most part, when people are getting ready to move, they don't want to add a lot of things. I mean, the things I was ordering was, like, tape and boxes and, you know, stuff like that. It wasn't wasn't like a $2,000 watch or something like that. (laughs) All of our money was going into the new house. That wasn't going to (laughs) happen. So I understand that. I mean, I think, like, but from a... From an automated perspective, though, there really isn't any way to put rules around that, right? No, no, there's not. Yeah, there wouldn't be. So that's that's kind of just one type
1: of drop address. We're not, as you said, we've not even discussed reshippers or anything else like that.
0: Great orders, yeah, and there's a lot of those. So virtual physical
1: addresses, we've got we've got problems with that now. I mean, all these things.
0: Right. So I mean, let's let's go into the other ones. Right. So reshipping. You know, I talk to retailers all the time. They're still dealing with it quite a bit. I mean, it really seemed to pop up like five, six years ago. And there's a difference between reshipping schemes and legitimate freight forwarders. I try to parse them out, even though there's a lot of similarities and fraud happens on both. I would say from my perspective, reshipping schemes are these work from home schemes or, you know, whatever, or romance schemes or whatever, where Um, Fraudsters and carters are having packages delivered to a consumer's address and then that consumer is then putting it in another box and shipping it usually overseas for the assumption that they are going to get paid for these services. Uh, A lot of times they think that, you know, it's very legitimate and all of that. Then there's the freight forwarders, which are legitimate businesses for the most part who provide services to people overseas to be able to order products in the U.S. that they can't get otherwise, that, you know, the company doesn't ship internationally. And some freight forwarders are bad. Some freight forwarders are used by bad guys. But for the most part, I would say, majority anyway, are probably legitimate, though, There are some inherent risks, especially around chargebacks, because you can only prove that you delivered it to the address that was given to you, not that second leg, which honestly, when it comes to responding to chargebacks, that's all you're responsible for. But sometimes that means that you get more chargebacks because they didn't get the product because the freight forwarder kept it or, you know, there was an issue with shipping and customs on their end. I know that there's a lot of people that have tried to locate lists of legitimate freight forwarders. Um, and I know that there are some companies that have tried to create them internally because there just aren't enough, you know, rule, um, there isn't a resource for all freight forwarding addresses in one spot, but I wouldn't say that, you know, it really depends on your business, whether that's going to happen legitimately or not, you know, is it a product they can get elsewhere or not? I think like, you know, it, it just makes it so hard, especially on the reshipping, but also freight forwarders, you know, you don't know the address unless you take time to Manually look it up. So, right. what would be some considerations on your end that you would think of to try to identify them? Sure. So, with with freight forwarders, the, the problem is is that
1: a lot of them do register with the United States Postal Service. All right. So you've got uh, you know it, it can be the small shops like FedEx, Kinkos, or mailboxes, et cetera, or something like that. Or it can be the bigger forwarders as well. A lot of them do register with the USPS as forwarders as reshippers. The problem is is that a lot of mom and pop joints do not register with that right those are the types of joints that that cyber criminals look at so if you've got a guy and we've mentioned venezuela before but if you've Mm -hmm. got someone from venezuela that is a carter that is a credit card thief and they're looking to order macbooks or tents or what have you the chances of apple or go a uh, uh, Bass Pro or anybody else sending products directly from the United States to Venezuela, that's simply not going to happen. So what the criminal has to do is he has to rely on a forwarder or a reshipper. So he can, he can try to find a mom and pop joint that will do that. He can uh, get on some of these criminal forums, and there are criminals there who they don't have any skill level at all so they offer drop addresses send the product here and I'll reship it from there they can do the scams on Craigslist looking for personal assistance or on indeed or monster trying to trick people into receiving the product and then forwarding it on to them from there so how do you how on earth do you do you identify stuff like that hell if I know I just know how to do it. (laughs)
0: Right. Well, right. I know. I just figured, I mean, I thought maybe there'd be a way. It's so challenging. And the lines are getting so blurry too, because I mean, talking to retailers, they, they research, you know, research everything about an order and they're trying to figure out, you know, and I'm talking about manual review because in an automated fashion, I really don't know if there's a solution to determine if something's, a reshipper or a freight forwarder, and certainly not that it's a, you know, a residential house that has been turned into a temporary drop address, like that would just be impossible. But then, you know, if you have enough indicators in that order that make it look like fraud, and it's risky, then it goes to your manual review team. So there are some things, you know, like you said, that you can do look to see if the house is for sale, look to see, you know, is it in a middle class neighborhood, you know, all those different things. But it's, such a challenge i mean there's been cases of you know orders that look legitimate they're going to a residential address that that's the only you know you really can't figure it out but then it turns out that it's this huge fraud you know coming from russia like i mean there's been situations where i know at least one merchant was seeing russian credit cards being used but shipping to a residence in the u.s but they couldn't what? find anything bad about the residents in the u.s so they're like well do we send it i mean they could just be visiting like we don't want to be you know, making gross assumptions that this is fraud, even though it looks a little suspicious. Um, And then there's also this new thing that I've been hearing a lot about with, I'm calling it a different version of hostile friendly fraud. (laughs) Kind of like what you have talked about in previous episode, there are several retailers starting to see fraudsters using prepaid cards to place a large dollar order. We're just going to pick on GoPros because that's, you know, pretty common. And we've picked on them before, like with third party retailers that sell GoPros. And say they want two or three GoPros, and you know it's a prepaid card, and everything you know pretty much checks out. So you, you know, so you approve that order and you send it. Well, then a week later they'll claim that they didn't receive it, right. and they want a refund on that. Well, we've got you know tons of legitimate customers playing that game too, but now we've got these bad guys but they're issuing chargebacks. They're not just like calling in for a refund. Um, they try to call in for a refund, and then if that doesn't work, then they're able to issue a chargeback because they registered that prepaid. Um, and that's, they've found that to be, it's kind of a gray area. It's not really carding, but it's not, you know, else, you know, otherwise. Well, it's still profitable. It, it's still profitable, yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And it still and, impacts the merchant.
1: And you're right, and and here's the deal on that. For uh, for a criminal to use a prepaid card to get that chargeback, Simply, some of the prepaid cards don't allow chargebacks. So the criminal has to find a card that will allow a chargeback. And right off my head, I don't know which cards are allowing chargebacks and which aren't. I know that uh, I think Green Dot is not allowing chargebacks right now. Uh, Same thing maybe for Account Now cards. But there are tons of cards that will allow a chargeback. Or they allow one chargeback and then they'll shut the card down after that. But that's enough for the criminal to get the product and the money back at the same time. So you're right about that. Uh, another thing is, uh, I mean, how do you catch that? Uh, I guess you could, you know, do the bin list things like criminal do, criminals do. Which bins are coming through? Are they are they part of um, the friendly fraud that's taking place? I think that, uh, you know, I talked about that with the Amazon friendly fraud back, back about a year ago. Right. You're, you're seeing criminals that are using prepaid debit cards. So if you're seeing someone that's added a prepaid debit card on there and you can, you can find out which ones are prepaid simply by going through a bin directory. So you run the first six digits through a bin directory. It will tell you if it's a prepaid debit card or not. So if you're seeing some sort of item or a high dollar item that's being refunded on a prepaid debit card, I would say that's a huge fraud indicator at that point.
0: Right. Right. No, and I would agree with that. Unfortunately, you know, bin lists are really hard to find. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of companies that do have them, they're, they're kind of homegrown. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you're able to determine if it's a prepaid card and it's a large dollar order, you know, look at it with a little bit more care. I mean, now some merchants have uh, been able to identify these schemes because the fraudsters get greedy and they start right. doing it more often. And then you can start to do some link analysis around email or address it's so challenging and that's why i both love and hate fraud these days you know in this day and age because it, it was a lot easier to catch back in the day
1: <laughs> there's a new type of drop address <laughs> as well i don't know if I, I think i mentioned that to you last year but it's worth mentioning again so we've get we've had historically we've had virtual business addresses mm. last year we started to see virtual residential addresses
0: now so you can what understand. would a virtual residential address look like like what's the use case for that or what is it it's
1: it can be used to mean? reship any specific thing you want to reship,
0: right? But what's so, the, what I don't really even understand a virtual address. Okay, so, um, so, so, and I'm going to assume nobody else does either.
1: Okay, so <laughs> so a virtual business address would be an address that's zoned in a business district, so that you could use. So you're setting up, a, you're running a company out of your house mm-hmm. instead of you having you're using your home address. You could use an address that's actually zoned in a business, so that it looks like it's within the the business district. All right. Ah. For a for a virtual residential address, you can use you can get an address in any of the 50 states in most of the cities in the 50 states. That's zoned for residential in case a company is looking for, OK, where is this address? Is it in a business district? So, you know, a lot of times fraudsters used to get PO boxes and would use that to have items shipped and then forwarded and on from there. Right. For mailboxes, et cetera, something like that. So instead of doing that now, what they're able to do, they get one of these virtual residential addresses. It looks like a home or an apartment. You look it up online, it will actually show this big apartment building. You have no idea that it's a virtual address. Meanwhile, the fraudster is having pieces of mail, packages, whatever that will be, sent directly to that virtual address and then forwarded on to him from there.
0: OK, so they're basically so no, that address doesn't really exist or it does exist in a building and then they just do like mail forwarding.
1: Right. That's exactly right. So it exists within a building. So think of it as think of it as someone in an apartment complex has set up a basic mail room. And while the mm. apartment complex may only have 50 units, the mail room has 200 boxes.
0: Okay, so those 150 addresses then, are people coming to pick up those items or are they being automatically forwarded from that one address out to other addresses that you as the merchant forwarded. would? So they're automatically forwarded.
1: Okay. So you think about someone and I, I you know, I'm, I'm this big synthetic fraud guy, but you look at someone that's that's committing synthetic fraud, he doesn't have to find a drop address for every single synthetic profile that he's setting up. What he can do is mm-hmm. he can just sign on to one of these virtual residential addresses 50 at a time and having the cards sent to all of those, you know, the, the 50 different addresses forwarded onto one major drop address from there. You can do the same thing with packages. So if you're looking at, uh, you know, nowadays cybercrime is sophisticated enough that if you're involved in credit card fraud, you can buy cards that are local to the city where the fraudster is, but you don't have to do that now with these virtual addresses. So you can, if I'm in Alabama, I can buy San Francisco cards, have a San Francisco virtual address there, have the product shifted directly to that virtual address, then forwarded to another drop address in Alabama. So that's the power of these virtual addresses all of a sudden.
0: I don't like it one bit, (laughs) (laughs) not even a little bit. It's actually scaring me quite a bit. So is there any legal or like, you know, good reason why somebody would use a virtual address like this?
1: Yeah, uh so you know you, you may be overseas and need to uh uh receive mail in the United States. I mean there's there's several different causes that would precipitate that type of thing. You may want uh, not want anyone to know your actual home address so you want to use a virtual address. There are use cases where it would be legal. The problem is is that criminals are very good about taking legal services.
0: Oh, yeah. For illegal means. (laughs) Yes, they are. Just ask Bitcoin. (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) Exactly. And so many other things. So how do you identify a virtual address? Like, is there I mean, if you Google an address, is it going to come up with an ad or where are these being advertised? Where are they being listed? Like what? Just putting myself in, you know, somebody who works, you know, actually in fraud on the ground these days, like putting me in their shoes. I'm like, holy crap. How do we even well, know if something's a virtual address or not?
1: The the good news is that you can Google these types of addresses. You just look for virtual residential address. You'll get some services that will pop up. The problem is, and and you know, I talked with uh, with Lexus Nexus, a few other people as well. Um, the problem is that until these, ver- these addresses are starting to be used for fraud, getting a list of these addresses is a little difficult, right? I mean, you, right. can, you can scrape them from the, from the service providers that are advertising them, but that doesn't provide every single address that's there. So until these addresses start to be used for fraud and get within whatever system is looking at the addresses and they're already flagged for fraud, it becomes problematic at that point.
0: Wow, that's depressing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So you can't, well, so you can't, like, you know, there isn't a comprehensive list of virtual addresses anywhere, and that makes sense. But then if you were to Google specific addresses, if you had an address that you were like, well, maybe it's this new thing that Brett was talking about. Maybe it's a virtual residential address. If you were to Google that address or put it into any of these services that verify addresses from, you know, White Pages Pro to LexisXis to... You know, I know email. I just starting to verify addresses as well. Like all of these things. How do you know? Is there anything going to come up on that? Or is it only if that address has been marked as fraud in a consortium?
1: Yeah, there's there's nothing that's initially going to come up on that address. There's nothing that's going to do that. It's going to show if you if you Google the address, it's going to show an apartment building. Sometimes it will show an actual home, things like that. And there's no real way to to determine that that's a virtual address versus a physical address.
0: Well, I guess what you could do, I'm just thinking out loud here, but say it's an apartment address and you Google it and you see it's an apartment and you're like, I wonder if this is a virtual, you know, residential. Now, this is going to take a little bit of work and it's going to (laughs) be manual, but this is the only thing I can think of. Couldn't you then go on to the website for the apartment building or, you know, looking at building specs and see how many apartments they have in the building? You could. And so if they, if. They have, you know, 50 apartments and you're sending this to apartment number, you know, 102, I guess, oh, shoot, they all do it differently, right, with right. Uh, with uh, floors and everything else. But, I mean, you could in theory, I guess, be like, wait, you know, this is – apartment number 1000, there aren't a thousand apartments, but I just kind of answered my own question that every building, you know, they might do the first floor as 100s and the second floor is 200s and yeah, they're not going to start at one and go to 50.
1: And then you have to consider too, which, which merchant or which company that's sending product or mail or whatever is actually going to pull specs on a building to do that.
0: Well, I can think of a few people that are listening right now that are that good when they do manual review that they will find it. I mean, b um,
1: <laughs> Photo would certainly do it back in the day.
0: <laughs> well, and there's a couple people I can think of right now that I'm not going to name that are just so good at digging and digging and looking at things. One of them I visited last week. They're they're <laughs> local to Seattle. And I love that. And I used to be that way, too. I mean, now I don't really have specific orders that I can dive into because I'm helping merchants on a strategy level. but which i equally adore. I can definitely relate to that passion. The challenge is then, you know, if you're being timed for how long you're taking to do manual review, the further you dig, the the longer it takes. But i just, you know, i don't want to i hate talking about problems without having a solution. I know in cases like this it's better to at least get the information out there. What types of merchants would you say would be most vulnerable to virtual addresses or is there any sectionality there? No.
1: Is it really a Everyone. Yeah. The, the problem with that, the, the problem with virtual addresses is that they're cheap enough that it opens up an entire range of, of different types of products that can be stolen. So historically, if a fraudster is running a drop address, it has to be worth it for his time, or he has to be out of area, you know, out of, out of the actual geographic area to use some sort of reshipper or something like that. These virtual residential addresses, you know, they're $10, $15 a month. So it's not bad. At that point, you open up an entire range of products and services that you can try to steal. You know, you can set up these these uh, uh, one of the guys. The, one of the guys that was on um, not AlphaBay, it was uh, Dream Forum or Dread or something like that. One of these darknet criminal forums. He was um, using the virtual addresses. And he was setting up synthetic profiles, but he wasn't setting them up setting them up all the way. He would set up 50 of these profiles, then he would file for 50 secured cards through Capital One. So he would pay the $39 that Capital One wants you to pay. Capital One would send a card with $200 on it. So he was making $170 a pop off of every single one that he was doing. When you look at something like that, the profit potential on that, the ease of being able to set up, it's no longer it's no longer a Carter that's looking at just MacBooks and, and cell phones. He can get pool filters, tools, any number of things that may only sell for a couple $300 on the resale for the black market and still profit enormously by that and be able to set up numerous drop addresses for every single order.
0: So basically, virtual residential addresses have now democratized drop addresses (laughs) for fraudsters. Is that what you're saying? Like it's opening it up to new people? Yeah, a lot of damage. A lot of damage. I don't like it. Is there anything else, though, that we can talk about as far as like the prevention side? Because I do know that. Maybe it's not that there's new ways, well, other than this one way, but that it's definitely a lot more prolific, like you said. I mean, just the the number of people, and I think a lot of merchants don't even know if they're sending something to a drop address or not, right? Right. Um, even when they get the chargeback, if you know, provided that they research it, which I will lecture merchants till I'm blue in the face that it's really, really, really important to look at your chargebacks. <laughs> if you ever need help with that, you know who to call. <laughs> but you, you know, you can then dive in and have. And realize like, oh, okay, so this is what this looks like. This is most likely a drop address. How do we, you know, because you, you could, in theory, like contact the person whose name is, you know, attached to that address. But with, you know, just the sheer level of time and volume, as well as a lot of people don't have landlines anymore registered to their front, their address, like it's, it's challenging. I'm just trying to like wrap my head around what advice we can give merchants who either suspect that either virtual residential addresses or drop addresses, you know, any of these things are being used. What can they do? I mean, to at least identify that it happened so they can put it into their fraud consortium. I mean, sure. at the very least.
1: So, I, you know, I look at at the things that we've talked about numerous times before. We look at the chargebacks. As you know, you're big about preaching that. I agree with that completely. Look at the chargebacks to find out what's going on. First of all. all
0: right, that's look, your missed fraud. Right. <laughs>
1: but you it's it's this layered approach to security that we preach all the time as well it's not only looking at at one aspect it's looking at every single aspect is it a new device that's signing in is it a new account that's placing the order is it an out is it an out of area order from the credit card is it is it going to a different shipping address then the billing, all these other things together. So you have to kind of look at everything as a whole. And then you use this intuition. That's one of the big things. You know, I love, I love the idea of machine learning and AI. The problem is, is that machine learning and AI, they have this thing missing called intuition that a human is always going to have, or gut feeling. Right. What, what am I looking at? Does this feel right And okay, yeah. Is that good security? Yes, it is. Because that's exactly what a fraudster does as well. When he gets up to go get his package, does everything feel all right? So Mm -hmm. it's the same thing that a merchant needs to do as well. Does this order feel okay? If it doesn't, then you need to follow your gut and start checking on things.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, only really diving into all this on the address and stuff after there's other indications that make it seem like fraud, because I think that there's a balance I couldn't agree more and I've been preaching it for years about, you know, layering your fraud tools. I think I've mentioned before I have a slide when I speak at events that say that, you know, ogres have layers. So fraud, fraud department should too, or fraud strategy should also. I'm going to watch that movie tonight now. I'm going to watch it. (laughs) How many movies have I inspired you to watch over the last Morning, I'm making waffles. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So... (laughs) So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you should have layers, there should definitely be, you know, things that you're looking at. And each let each type of layer really varies based on the type of merchant you are. And you know, your culture to fraud, your 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 company's culture, and attitude towards fraud is what I meant by that your, you know, your technical capabilities, your price point of your items, your average consumer, those layers of fraud, aren't only going to help you detect fraud, they're also going to help you detect it in a better way so that you're not having as many false positives and I think that's really important because whenever I mean I've just seen so many things where companies are focused on just stopping the fraud but you're not focused on the 99% of good orders and I I think that it's an attitude of a manual reviewer that should be instead of I'm going to look for all the ways that this is fraud I'm going to look for all the ways that this is good because I want this order to convince me that it's good because the good guys are the ones that pay my paycheck not the bad guys right Those different layers can also help you be more specific in which orders you're canceling rather than just blanketing a lot of them. I do see a lot of merchants who just use one case management system, especially, you know, the rules-based case management systems, really leaving a lot of money on the floor by cancellations, either automated cancellations or manual review cancellations. So definitely agree with layers. I think also having, you know, manual reviewers who want to dig in and figure out the real story, who have that curiosity and kind of that gaming mindset of just searching for the truth and, and looking in, in all the different places and corners, either on the internet or wherever, whatever it is, you know, picking up the phone and calling or whatever it is. I think that's super important. And I think, you know, obviously educating yourself on what's out there so that you can know what to look for. And really that end to end look of, you know, having a feedback loop from your chargebacks of what are we missing, as well as what types of friendly fraud problems are we seeing that we can maybe, you know, change the behavior on the front end. Those are things I'm going to preach forever because it's what I do in my consulting practice, but it's also just super important. I've seen the value of it. Just, (laughs) I mean, I'm very (laughs) grateful that every every company I've worked with so far has a really high ROI with working with me because I do have a way of approaching it that's different. But it does kind of suck when these new things come out and we don't have a surefire way to identify it. I don't like sharing the information as much as people don't like listening to it, (laughs) but I agree with you that it's more important to get it out than leave it in. I think we accomplished that, but it's, it's an added challenge for physical goods. I mean, I guess in one way, if you're a digital goods merchant, you can be like, ha, it used to be us that had it hard. (laughs) Now it's you guys. (laughs) <laughs> that is true. That is but true. for physical goods merchants, you have my empathy for what it's worth. <laughs> and, you know, I know also like, you know, just to put in a plug for Brett, like he really does offer a lot of help to his merchant consulting clients where he'll dive into the dark web and figure out what what's being said about you and, you know, can help on, you know, educating these specific to your company in addition to just, you know, high up on the from like a 10,000 foot view merchant level, which is what we talk about on the podcast. So just throwing that out there. I know you have a bit of a busy schedule with speaking gigs coming up soon, but you'll have some more free time in the summer. So
1: absolutely
0: (laughs) looking that for you. I'm about to, yeah, kind of, pop my head out too after may and when things calm down too so that's definitely not meant as a plug for either one of us well it's meant for as a plug for brett i don't like plugging myself but what 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 you definitely
1: (sighs) need to plug yourself come (laughs) on now it's
0: just not my style i've somehow managed to survive four and a half years of my own business by not you know being braggy but i you know do obviously i always come from a place of wanting to help people so um, and problem solving as well. And and you and I have very different focuses on that, but I'm looking more at like the strategy of prevention and you're, you know, helping people identify the threats that come their way. Um, and I think equally they're both equally important and things that a lot of companies just don't have really a, a line of sight on in either way. So sometimes it's awesome just to call somebody who's been doing this for a long time and say, Hey, what are other people doing or what, you know, and that's what I try to provide. Unfortunately, A lot of times with the stuff that isn't attached to a client, I just, I can't always get to in time, but I try really hard and I appreciate everybody understanding that. (laughs) So we always got got a little bit off topic there, but I did just want to, you know, say that because I think I just, I feel so bad for people that are like, oh great. So now there's a new threat and we don't even know how to, we don't even know how to identify (laughs) the old stuff, right? We don't know how to identify the reshipping schemes or the freight forwarders or What's a drop address of something that you know a house that may be listed for sale or is a rental property or you know a temporary rental property, and then on top of that, it's you know now there's these virtual residence residential addresses. The one question I did want to ask you before we end this podcast is, I wonder if if we kind of turn this problem on its head and we tried to educate consumers more about it, right? Like either through news articles or, you know, news spots on TV or I don't know what, or having merchants educate their consumers or some you know, especially the big guys, something like that of like, Hey, if you've got people, you know, if you keep getting packages or if you see people snooping around and taking packages off your porch that you didn't order, I, I mean, what can they do though? Right. Cause well, I, I guess I think law enforcement and, you this, know. this
1: is what we started out talking about right. every single aspect of cybercrime affects every single person it's not just so so and and lord knows merchants have enough dif- difficulty just worrying about the specific business that they're in or the vertical that they're in right but the problem is is that if you raise awareness across the board not just with the merchant and and the types of crime the merchant is looking at but also with every single person if you can raise everyone's awareness of okay are you seeing someone in the neighborhood picking up packages or they're They're looking suspicious. And I mean, there are telltale signs that you can look for. That will, that will showcase that type of stuff. It's it's all about raising the overall awareness across the board that will lower crime. It's not just having the, the, the one specific tunnel vision of whatever vertical you're in. It's, it's having this overall approach. You know, I talk a lot about cybersecurity awareness training, that we shouldn't be doing awareness training at work. We should be teaching the person to be safe overall online. So if you teach that to everyone across the board, you're going to see these crime numbers start to drop. Are you going to get rid of crime? No, you're not going to get rid of all crime, but you're going to see, you're going to become much safer, much more secure overall.
0: I think they're very good points, and actually, kind of a window into some of the conversations you and I have had about the future of our podcast, right, the future right. direction of our podcast, right? And I've needed a little bit of convincing because, I mean, to be completely honest and as cheesy as this is going to sound, <laughs> like merchants that are fighting payment fraud, they have my heart. Like, that's what I care about most because that's what I've dedicated the last 14 years of my career to. But I am starting to see whether it's, you know, by the people in my life that have been affected by cybercrime, you know, recently like we talked about on the last episode sure. or just in general – And I think there's a lot of reasons for it, especially in the U.S. Some of it is that organizations like the, you know, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is no longer really actively enforcing things. There are other, you know, and the FCC is no longer actively enforcing spam calls and different things like that. But there's also just there's a heightened action of cybercrime in general for a lot of contributing reasons all over the world. And I I know for a fact that consumers education has not kept up. And I do think that there is this, you know, kind of cyclical thing that if we maybe educate all people within that that's affected by the crime or, you know, doesn't even know what to be aware of, that then we are hopefully making a dent in overall crime. I mean, I know. Just even, you know, talking to my grandma about the issue that happened with, you know, when she thought she was getting a call from the Social Security Administration. Cool. She said, well, I knew that the IRS never calls people because I saw it on the news, but I didn't know that the Social Security Administration never calls people. So I believe them. That speaks to the fact that at least, you know, getting the word out about the IRS scam or scams calling from the Internal Revenue Service in the U.S., aren't, you know, aren't valid. So now we have to educate them about more. Same with, you know, a lot of spam and phishing emails. A lot of people realize, you know, okay, if they say they're a Nigerian prince, it's probably fraud. But I mean, we're (laughs) way past that now. That was like 10, 20 years ago. I'm just saying like, there is an evolution of education that then means that the bad guys move on. Yeah, I do think that that's something missing in the world is, you know, a source of information on those topics for everyone. I know you do. <laughs> I'm just finally coming around to it. I know you do, Johnson. I know it. Shut up, Johnson. Oh, I, no, no, not shut up. Just, oh, I'm fully aware of where you stand on the issue. I never have to ask you where you stand on something because you really made sure that I know. And I'm grateful for that. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm the same way. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll, like, just start recording all of our phone conversations and put them on Patreon there or something go. like that. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I don't know. We'd have to bleep out a lot.
1: (laughs) That may be part of the endearing charm, not bleeping.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. I don't know. That's a future conversation.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, are we ready to close this one out?
0: I think we need to. I feel like, you know, we probably really depressed people. I wish we had more answers for, you know, what can be done. But definitely, I will say one quick thing that if If you're a merchant and you've figured out somehow, or some way, or some tool that's helping you identify addresses that might be for sale, or drop addresses, uh, reshippers, freight forwarders, and especially this new residential virtual address thing, like let us know. We certainly don't ever claim to have all the answers. I definitely try to know what people are doing and what works, but we'd love to hear it.
1: There you go. Well, that's it for episode today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. You know, we've got so many of these topics to cover to help protect you and your company from fraud. So please subscribe to the online fraudcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out. Please tell your friends, rate and review wherever you see us, and that will help increase our listeners and get this word out about proper security awareness training and overall safety.
0: And we want to hear from you guys what you love so far about the podcast, how we can improve, and what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find online broadcasts on Facebook or find us individually on LinkedIn.
1: Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure.